Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Episode 123 of Outlander Cast is brought to you by Minute with Mary. If you have a moment, head on over to Facebook and search the hashtag Minute with Mary. I'm there to help you feel more confident and creative when it comes to your makeup or skincare. And it is. It's just me, Mary. So search that hashtag Minute with Mary. All the way from Cranston, Rhode Island, welcome to Outlander Cast. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Mary Larson. My name's Blake, and I can't believe that this episode has happened. Yep, it's true. It has. I can't believe it. We're really excited, guys, because this is something that we have been waiting for for years. You as our listeners have been waiting for, and I'm not going to lie. It's going to be a lot of fun to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) I think I may have listened to this interview now at least four or five times. Just just in the car, driving, you know, relaxing, whatever, having a good time. And I was like, you know, I got to listen to this interview again. I know. I I know. I got to do it. It was a lot of fun, and you're going to hear how, how fun a Diana really is. It was just a joyful experience to be able to speak with her over the phone, to delve into things that are going to be carrying us through season four and beyond, and just to be able to geek out about our favorite series on TV. Right. And just so you know, there is a mild, and I put it very clearly, very mild in my opinion, spoiler, Agreed. about the season four premiere, America the Beautiful. Diana speaks of it as if a lot of people have watched it, and a lot of people did watch it, but if you want to stay completely spoiler-free for the season four premiere, America the Beautiful, of Outlander, I would suggest that you skip over it. Blake and, will write in the show notes what, well, uh, how the timestamp of what you'll want to skip well, over. Well, I think, I think what we should do is actually give a warning in, in the mid interview just okay. be like okay hey you know like just if you want to skip ahead to, <laughs> uh, to, to x number yeah and you know d- we'll do that so but i will say that if you are someone who is a show watcher and you're like ah is it really that bad of a spoiler it's not that bad of a spoiler no it's not it really isn't it, it, it it's isn't just, but it's... just i, I want to be i'm sensitive to it and i want to make sure that if there's anybody out there that for you know, blake it, as just a show watcher right. would you have felt like the spoiled things for you no but I do feel like I want to go in with a fresh look. I want to go in completely unaware. And even as a book reader, it is an interesting thing that necessarily, you know, we wouldn't have read. So, right. So, it's, (laughs) I I just want to say it is important that if you do want to have a spoiler free experience, 
we will tell you when you know the spoiler begins. We'll Agreed. give a warning, and we'll even tell you when to the number to skip to. Agreed. As a matter of fact. Now, before we get into the interview, we just want to make sure that you are up to snuff. Make sure you're following us and subscribing to the podcast because guys season four is almost here so make sure you hit that subscribe button you can find us on facebook twitter instagram youtube all using the title outlander cast and you can become an official member of the outlander cast clan at outlandercastclan.com where you can get great benefits and extras this season like off-air podcasts access to the outlander cast giveaways free swag and much more okay darling are you ready to get into this, I, I, I'm yes. still, I'm still, I'm like, I said it before last episode, I'm like sweating thinking about how great this is going to be. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. Let's right, do it. Let's do it. Joining us today is a woman who needs no introduction. She just happens to be the author of one of the most read series in history, which has exhilarated millions of people, brought global awareness to Scotland's rich history and culture, and single-handedly inspired the most popular television show on stars. Ladies and gents, Sassanox and Outlander fanatics alike, we present you the author of the Outlander series, Miss Diana Gabaldone. Diana, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Outlander cast today. Yeah, nice to talk to both of you. As a great surprise to all of us, uh, you were on stage at New York Comic Con. We were there and we got a chance to see it. And uh, yeah, it was it was fantastic to see. Thank you for being a part of it. <laughs> yeah, knock the moderator sideways. Oh my gosh, a huge surprise. Did you see that? I've never seen like that. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was great. <laughs> so on the panel, you said something that actually kind of shocked me. Um, when you, when you were asked why you chose the time and setting and what intrigued you about this such fertile ground for your story. And your response could be summed up in two parts, which is one, it didn't really matter what the setting was because it's the characters' lives. Mm-hmm. The setting is not that important. And the second response was that the Scots just moved to the Americas and that's what happened in history. But I guess my question kind of revolves around your first part of that answer, which is, does the setting really not matter to you in a story that you're writing or is it just another tool to tell emotional stories? Oh, no, the setting matters, you know, um, insofar as, for instance, if you're moving to North Carolina in 1766, you're going to be in the path of a number of things like the War of the Regulation and the American Revolution Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, But your story is set around these particular characters and how they respond to the setting. In other words, it's not that the setting doesn't matter, it's that the setting, uh, the story will be controlled by the character's response to the setting. And therefore, you know, I could put them down in in Jamaica and we would have an interesting story still based around those characters. It would be a different story because, you know, a a completely different sort of violence and conflict was unraveling in Jamaica. So yeah, this is historical fiction, so naturally it's controlled uh, to some extent, well, I could say it's controlled by it, but it is... uh, guided, I'd say, by uh, the uh, the events and the tide of history, which is what the second half of my answer indicated, which is this is what happened to the Scots, and that's what happened to them afterward, is that they did become embroiled to a large degree in the events that led up to the American Revolution, though just as with the Jacobite rising, they fought on both sides. <laughs> I loved the sound of the entire audience when you dropped that fact bomb of how many Scots, you know, the percentage of, of Scots that were in the Revolutionary War, and we all went, whoa! 
oh, <laughs> collectively. <laughs> <laughs> no, there were a lot of them. Yeah. And, you know, uh, coming straight out of the, the story of the Jacobite Rebellion and so forth and what happened to the survivors of that. Uh, of course, a lot of people have the impression that all of the Scots, you know, were transported convicts mm-hmm. or indentured servants or something, which is not true. Uh, the greater proportion of them went voluntarily because uh, matters were pretty dire in Scotland. It was very poor economically, particularly in the Highlands, and a great many people left out of necessity, you know, in search of, you know, survival, if not yeah. a better life. And then, of course, many of them were transported. But. Yeah. My lineage, a lot of it comes from Scotland, and I'm a daughter of the Revolution, so when I heard that, I was like, okay. yes, those are my people! <laughs> so, uh, it made me excited. No, they were definitely here. <laughs> yeah. So, you are famously a non- linear writer. You write in kernels. And we wanted to know, have you ever written yourself into kind of a a corner where you've said, oh, goodness, I don't know how to get out of this. And are there things that you wrote back in the 80s and 90s that you're still waiting to capitalize on the next two books? Well, no, I've never written myself into a corner that I couldn't get out of. Uh, that's one, one benefit to the way I write. In fact, uh, you know, several years ago, I was having breakfast with George R. R. Martin. He lives in Santa Fe, and we have a small place there that we live in for a week or so out of every month. So if we're in town together, we have breakfast so three or four times a year. Anyway, we were talking about you know, what we were doing and all that, and I said, well, how's the book going, George? And he said, well, I'm having trouble with it. He said, I've kind of painted myself into a corner. He said, you know, have you ever had that happen? And I said, well, no, George. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard. I said, you find yourself in a corner. All you do is change the color of the paint, you know, and paint yourself back to the door. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. You are essentially, you know, the god of your own little Outlander universe. Well, not little. It's a it's a huge Outlander universe. <laughs> it's bigger by the minute. I know. Every novelist is is god, which is one of the reasons why we do it. You know, not everybody <laughs> makes a living at it, let alone is successful. But you know, within the realm of your novel, you run everything. You make all the decisions. What you write is the end all be all of of your world. You are the master of that universe. Mm. But we know that mm-hmm. there's we know that there's a little piece of you in each character, and, and we know that characters Uh you've said that they speak to you so have you ever written anything that kind of surprised you or have you ever said no to a character meaning like has that specific character in that specific voice ever said anything to you that he or she suggested that in something and you disagreed with that character yeah, no, no, I can't say they do. I mean, often they say things that surprise me, and I mm-hmm. sort of rear back and think about that a little. I think, really? Oh, why did you say that? Oh, I see. And well, that opens up a whole different can of worms, doesn't it? But no, I, I, I don't try to drive my characters. I mean, I know some writers actually think they are in control of their characters and you know they're just puppets and you pick them up and move them around and I have read books where that's quite obviously the case but they're not my favorite books <laughs> and, uh, you know that's, that's just not the way I work mm-hmm. well could you give me an example of where a character surprised you in your early writings oh yeah well quite frequently um, in Voyager for instance uh, Mr. Willoughby I wasn't really expecting mm-hmm. him at all he just sort of came in uh, when he stuck his head in and I was mm-hmm. thinking wait a minute who are you <laughs> and then he came in entirely and, you know, just these, Mr. Willoughby is what I call a mushroom. It's one of these people who spring up out of nothing and weren't expecting them at all, but they just walk off with any scene they're in. Mm-hmm. And so he introduced himself and, you know, things got very interesting for a while there. Anyway, then Claire's, you know, in bed and uh, the next thing that happens is another knock at the door and young Ian comes in <laughs> and, is, of course, flabbergasted to find her. Uh, of course, he doesn't know who she is. 
immediately, having never met her prior, and assumes that she is a prostitute, assumes further that she is having, a, you know, illicit commerce with his uncle, is rapidly drawing, you know, the worst conclusion. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just kind of letting this run and thinking, okay, what's going to happen next? So the next thing that happens is, you know, his, his father comes in and it's, what are you doing in a brothel? What are you doing in a brothel? <laughs> and, you know, that whole conversation just kind of exploded all over the place. And meanwhile, you know, Claire's just kind of lying in bed watching all this. <laughs> <laughs> when you're when you're writing and these surprises and these thoughts are coming to you, do you ever find yourself laughing out loud saying, oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> Oh, sure. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, you know, we just talked about how the characters and you're able to kind of control and guide these situations with these characters. But then, of course, it's been a completely different beast working with humans that aren't created inside your brain, the producers and the writers of the show. And we wanted to know, was there mm-hmm. ever a scene cut from your book where you said, absolutely not, this needs to remain? And how did you go about that conversation? Oh, sure. That happens all the time. <laughs> and, you know, we just talk about it and so forth. Um, now, sometimes they will just not include a scene that I think should have been there. And that's much harder to get them to put back in. And in fact, I don't try very hard because when they've uh, built a script, you know, the script itself is self-referential. It's got its own structure. And it may be that there just isn't room in there to, you know, widen things out enough to fit this scene in or that the scene, if we shoehorned it in, there would not be enough of it left for it to have its original impact. Mm-hmm. That happens fairly frequently. Sometimes they'll try to use, you know, little scraps of, of a scene where they can't fit in the whole scene, that they'll try to get something in to try to please the fans. And usually I try to talk them out of that when they do, because it, it, it's, it, it doesn't work. It doesn't work very well. Yeah, there's, I'll, I won't go into it because it has to do with season four, and I shouldn't talk spoilers here, but there was a bit in <laughs> there where they, yeah. they originally had it in mind to do something that would have mm. been really stupid, <laughs> but, you know, out of, out of really good motives. You know, they were going to say, well, we, you know, we can't do this scene the way it is, but, you know, we could do this, you know, in, instead, you know, so the, the readers would realize we were thinking about, about them. And I said, you don't want the readers to be thinking about you while they're watching the show. And furthermore, they'd just be annoyed, you know, at the thought that you knew all about this scene and why it was important to them, but you didn't do it. So, you know, just leave it out. <laughs> but no, in terms of you know, things that, that are in, and sometimes, you know, uh, they remove them for time or something like that. Well, one of those happened in, in fact, the uh, episode 401, which I guess we can talk about since it has been shown and its premiere will actually be in, in about a week. Um, Okay, guys, we're going to interrupt you for just one minute before Diana delves into that minor spoiler that we were talking about for Outlander season four that happens at the premiere. So if you do not want to hear the mild spoiler, you should probably skip to 17 minutes and 20 seconds. So we're going to give you some time to do that with uh, with no uh, with no sound right here. And remember, go to 17 minutes and 20 seconds. Okay, guys, here it is. The final warning for the spoiler averse. In that one, uh, it's the scene in the graveyard when they're getting ready to bury Gavin Hayes. And Ian and Jamie are digging the grave, and Ian suddenly has a terrible flashback to what happened to him in Jamaica with uh, with Gavin Duncan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's, he's terribly upset. And anyway, they're 
is and was originally a nice conversation between him and Jamie, you know, where Ian is kind of pouring out his heart and saying, you know, has anything like this ever happened to you? And, <laughs> and Jamie is going, oh, I has, mm-hmm. you know, I have. <laughs> and, you know, and it's this very uh, intimate moment between them where there's, you know, complete openness and vulnerability between them where they're both kind of confessing, yes, this is, <laughs> this is awful. It, it did happen to me and I didn't, I didn't like it. It was horrible, but, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Jamie's, you know, kind of explaining how you deal with that and so forth. Anyway, it, it's, it's like a, a 90 second scene or something, but it is this very nice, uh, you know, tender scene between them and a scene of complete emotional intimacy. Mm-hmm. Well, that uh, was originally in the script. It was originally shot. It was in the first couple of, of uh, versions of the episode, and then they took it out and, uh, you know, for time because they were thinking, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with the plot. You know, when they get putting things together, it's always the plot. You know, we have to get the plot in, you know, and mm-hmm. so everything else, so these little, uh, you know, humorous scenes and small touches, they film them, but often they disappear when they put the episodes together because there's just not time. And they say, well, we have to do the plot. We can't do this and so forth. And, you know, sometimes you can talk them into doing it anyway, but <laughs> sometimes not. It depends how loose they are. Um Anyway, in this particular instance, I, I wrote to uh, to the showrunners and uh, and explained to them why that scene is important. I said, look, you know, this is the only scene of this type between Jamie and Ian in the entire se- season. I said it shows the true relationship between them that they have this uh, this deep emotional vulnerability, and it shows how, uh, you know the paternal love that Jamie has for uh, for Ian, and uh, you know, and that Jamie you know or Ian approaches Jamie starts him, you know, in a fatherly light, you know, he's, he's you know, willing to tell him, you know, these, these terrible things and relies on him for advice. But it's this, you know, deep emotional uh, dependence on each other. Yeah. I said, this is the only time it happens until, you know, the very end when, you know, mm-hmm. um, something happens that, that separates them. <laughs> and I said, if you expect that scene at the end to have the emotional impact that it should, we have to have this scene up front that that establishes that intimacy. Mm-hmm. Because I said, you know, for the rest of the season, you know, Ian is certainly there and taking part in things and so forth, but there is no other scene like that between him and Jamie. Mm-hmm. So you need to have that. Anyway, they listen and they put it back in. Oh, I'm glad <laughs> you fell for it. It was a lovely scene. So, and as you said, it is, it's mm-hmm. an important part. So as the writer of, of these stories, you've been able to detail the characters, you've been able to detail the settings and, and the places that these characters go, their costumes, all these things. But one thing that has been truly unique to having the show is the music. So I wanted to know, because of yes. course, it's not like you get to write about music in the book. Um, you know, like, and then mm-hmm. this is playing in the background. Yeah. So I wanted yeah, to know exactly. <laughs> which musical choice or score from the show do you feel like really best reflects the characters that you create in this book? Which one has stood out to you when you said, that's it? Hmm. I don't know. You know, um, <laughs> actually, I love the Almanac albanac part when in the first episode of the first season when claire suddenly realizes that she's you know not in england yes, anymore yes. and you know all hell breaks loose with the drums and pipes and so forth i think that's pretty great yes. but uh but actually i think bear does a wonderful job of melding the music with both uh, both setting and character i don't consciously regard the the music while i'm watching 
Mm-hmm. And I, he does send me uh, CDs of the of the scores, and you know sometimes I'll play those as background music while I'm working. Wow! Uh, and, and they're very good for that. But you know I don't think consciously. Oh, this is the music that goes with this, yeah. etc. It's, it's just a fairly organic part of the uh, of the uh, of the show. Uh, but he does a really wonderful job with it. Well, you know everybody loves talking about the love story between Jamie and Claire, of and course. obviously rightfully mm-hmm. so. Uh, that that makes perfect sense. But for me, as a show watcher, what has been fascinating is, or well, at least are your antagonists and how they affect Jamie and Claire on such a visceral mm-hmm. level. They, they force them to make choices that they otherwise would never choose. I, I would say that Black Jack Randall is probably my second favorite antagonist in television history, next to like the Joker in The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just think he's just delicious as an antagonist. So what makes a, an antagonist compelling to you? Oh, well, let's see, a complete lack of conscience health, you know, <laughs> because you never know what the person like that will do. Uh, they don't uh, suffer from any of the constraints that normal people do. Dog, I'm going to make this dog shut up so they won't be on your podcast. <laughs> and, hey, come on, guys, go back inside. Shoot. Well, you know, I don't actually you know, create a, a villain thinking, oh, my God, I'm, how am I going to make this person? I don't create characters at all, you know, in that way. It's just that they, they kind of, well, I'm sure you've heard me or say this or read it, but for me, characters are one of three kinds. They're either an onion, a mushroom, or a hard nut. Mm-hmm. And an onion is somebody like Jamie or Claire, whose essence I apprehend immediately. But uh, the longer I work with them, the more layers of experience they develop. They become more pungent and rounded. So, you know, Claire and Jamie remain who they are, but the longer I work with them, the deeper and more complex their characters become. Just like when you have a friend that you've had for many years, you may suddenly discover things about them that you never knew and yet those things fit into the the persona of the care of the person you do know and uh, you know just add to the friendship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and is something really horrible <laughs> but uh, you know the same way with uh, with a villain it's not that I went out about to create a villain as such a villain was more or less provided by the setting you know in that it was the lead-up to the Jacobite rising and so forth and uh, you know this this red coat was there so you know plainly he was an antagonist just by virtue of who he was, where he was. Well, what kind of person was he? Well, that kind of just developed. Uh, Black Jack was a mushroom as well. I didn't really think about him to any great extent, or at least not in a conscious way, until uh, Tobias was cast in the show to play him. And then Tobias wrote to me and said, what can you tell me about this guy? You know, what was his background like? You know, uh, was his family posh? Were they working class? I need to know so I know what kind of accent to give him and mm-hmm. so forth. Anyway, I, uh, at that point, you know, I had been asked questions about Jack Randall periodically, and I had little bits of things that I'd written. So I collected all those, and I wrote some more. You know, I wrote up a, an essay, a sort of a dossier on Black Jack Randall, which I, I sent to Tobias for, for use. You know, <laughs> I said, you know, use anything that, that's useful to you and forget the rest. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so uh, he did and did a wonderful job with it. But anyway, that uh, that dossier, that essay is, uh, is in uh, the Outlandish Companion, Volume 2. So if anybody wants an in-depth psychological analysis of Black Jack Randall, that's where you could find it. I, I will absolutely be reading that. Uh, you know, just to follow up on that, what, what did Tobias do that would that, that revealed anything to you that you didn't necessarily like have a hold of on Black Jack Randall? Because like, how, how Black did, Jack yeah. wasn't an onion. Yeah. Yeah. How, how did he? How did he do that character for you? And did he reveal anything to you that you didn't already necessarily have a full grasp on? 
this is one thing that Tobias does is that he does, you know, kind of explore the crevices of his character, and he uh, and he employed his own mannerisms to a large extent. Um, he did, you know. Uh, use most of the book lines and so forth, mm-hmm. but there had to be other things as well. Now that, um, there's a very long conversation between him and Claire in episode six. And uh, if I had written it, it would not have evolved that way. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bear wrote it, I believe. And so it evolved in that particular way. And I had no problem with it, but it was quite different than it would have been had I, had I and my version of Life Tech Randall written it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was... Uh, a little more stilted. Uh, there were uh, a few parts where, where my Jack Randall showed through when Claire says something and uh, says, you know, do, do, are you accusing me of lying? And he remarks calmly, Madam, I would not believe you if you said night was day. <laughs> day was night. You know, because that was very much what Jack, my Jack yes. Randall would have said. Some of the other stuff, not so much. Uh, you know, stuff with the portrait, uh, drawing on the napkin and so forth. I thought that was interesting, but it wasn't anything that, that my Jack Randall would have done. Mm-hmm. It so, didn't bother me though. Oh, yeah. It wasn't, you know, out of character. It was just not something that I would have that I would have envisioned. We know that you've shared the epilogue of Outlander with Ron and other members of his company, but I, um, I think the act of getting there is just as important. So let's say, for the sake mm-hmm. of argument, that they did catch up at writing pace and they do end after season six. I mean, that's what they've been blocked for so far, and say they do end at season six. Mm-hmm. How comfortable will you be with a situation like? the one that George R. R. Martin is going through, where the TV show has to end on its own terms. Of course, your books have continued on and we're going to be getting a new one uh-huh. you know, soon. And But yet the show might have to end at season six and they might need to end things up and wrap things up a little differently. How comfortable are you with that? Oh, well, I wouldn't like it, of course, because I don't think they would do it right. <laughs> but, but with luck, they would uh, consult with me and we might be able together to come to you know some feasible um, solution mm-hmm. and just accept it as the show is the show, the books are the books. If you want to know what really happens next, you know, here are the next four books, which I think might be good for book sales on the whole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have shared the epilogue with them, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, do you have the... Well, with Ron and Sam, those were the two people who I thought needed to know it. <laughs> okay, great. Fantastic. And, and with that in mind, though, I've also read where you said you're not really sure how the book ends, not necessarily the, epi- mm-hmm. the epilogue, but the ending. So I think that's, yeah. the, that's mm-hmm. the idea about getting there. Would you be okay with them getting there in a different direction to, to the epilogue? No. No, not at all. No, no. I, I actually know where the ending is. Uh, I'm not telling anybody what that is. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's fair, and I, nobody would want mm-hmm. that. At least in my opinion, nobody should want that. Mm-hmm. But just People the act of getting there. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, just the act of getting there, I think, is also a fascinating mm-hmm. thing, too. Mm-hmm. So you wrote an episode in season two, and you, like you said, you're considered a consultant on that show. So yeah. I imagine that you're yeah. you're privy to the in- entire writing process from from the break. Yes, that's right. They, from, from the they break. show me everything. Right. Yeah, the scripts, uh, the script uh, outlines, the revisions of the scripts. There's six to eight revisions of each script before it even gets ready to film, and then it revises some more while it's being shot for various reasons. And uh, let's see. Oh, they show me the daily footage as they shoot it, and they show me the various uh, episodes as they're put together. 
You're a busy bee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, during the filming season, I usually have, you know, an hour or two of stuff to look at during every evening, you know, whether reading scripts or looking at, at, uh, at films or whatever. They, and they encourage me to comment, and uh, mm-hmm. and they always listen to my comments. They may or may not do what I suggest, but, <laughs> but they do listen to me. <laughs> do, do they show you the final cut, and, and do they still give you an opportunity to be like, yes. nah, we're not doing that, that's, that's no good, or, or you need to add something of uh, something else? Uh, well, it depends entirely on the uh, the circumstances and what it is. Um, usually, I mean, technically, there's the studio cut, the network cut, studio network cut. Then there's the uh, the, the uh, uh, some other cut comes in between, and then finally you get to what's called a locked cut. Now, technically, a locked cut means you can't do anything else to it. This is the final version. However, you know, if it is an important episode and people are, you know worried about it or there's a lot of controversy or pushback between the studio the network and the production as to what should be in it what should not be in it can we do two minutes over can we not do two minutes over and so forth then you may get more than one locked cut so I have had uh, people tell me when I said something they said oh no we can't do that it's a locked cut and I said okay no problem okay <laughs> but having seen it now through <laughs> through four seasons well that scene that I mentioned to you between Jamie and Ian as I say that they took that out of you know the, the last few episodes and I wrote to them and I said look you know I realized that it's a locked cut said on the other hand this is the third locked cut I've seen of this episode <laughs> so I'm assuming there might be a little wiggle room here and you know this is my thinking on this particular thing so anyway it is actually kind of a big deal to include anything in a locked cut mm-hmm. you actually have to go up uh, through the networks of through the ladders of the networks and studios to a very high level to get approval to do that and then they have to actually physically unlock the uh, the editing frame or whatever it is they have the the episode in in order to insert that. So I was actually very gratified that they did do that at yeah. such a late stage. But, you know, they, they bought my reasoning as to why that was important. I'm glad they did. Well, out of all of the seasons so far, which adaptive choice or change was your favorite and why? And, and if you can, which was your least favorite and why? But definitely we want to know which has been your favorite. Oh, my favorite was what they had done with uh, Rupert and Angus mm-hmm. during seasons one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was fascinating. I mean, those characters both exist in the books, but they're used in a completely different way in the show. And I thought what they did, you know, using them as sort of, you know, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz was, uh, was uh, quite good and very effective. Yes, yes, totally agree. They became <laughs> just the wonderful characters that um, you know, when you do, when we do when we revisit those seasons, it's just an extra joy. It's like it's like homecoming, you know, going back to see those good old friends. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I'm really impressed by is, you know, like again, the the vast nature of your storytelling and how popular it has become. And when you start when you first started, we we know and you've said many times that it was just a practice book, but with each book, mm-hmm. each book, there's more and more and more pressure, and with the show, and literally millions of people hanging on your every word, trying to dissect, dissect them on social media or whatever. How has yeah. how, how has your writing process evolved from those early days, mm-hmm. and 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 how do you even like begin to process? All of that pressure from your fans. I can't even fathom that. 
well, I don't, so, you know, I just don't think about it. <laughs> you know, it, it's basically not their business, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only come into the proposition when the book is finished. They have absolutely nothing to do with what I think or how I work. Um, they have nothing at all to do with other the shape the story takes, the direction that it goes in. Um, I mean, they can jump up and down and scream and yammer and carry on, but, you know, I... I don't need to pay any attention to it. They can't affect me in the slightest, let alone make me do anything that I don't want to do or not do something that I have it in mind to do. Um, so, you know, if if you're a novelist and you're lucky enough to have more than one fan, it's impossible to satisfy all of them <laughs> as everybody will want something different. And, you know, it, it's impossible. So, you know, why even worry about it? Mm-hmm. You know, my job is only to make the best book that I can possibly make, which means the book that best satisfies me and my criteria for what a good story is. If I've achieved that, then I'm happy with it. And, you know, then it goes off to sale and there's marketing and, you know, all these kinds of things, which have to do with the sale of the book, but they have nothing to do with the story or the creation. And that's entirely mine, you know, the, the marketing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll help them with it all I can, because of course I would like the book to, to sell and, you know, Know, reach its market and uh, you know and reach the people that's intended to reach. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, money has never been a reason for my writing. As I say, I never expected to uh, to have anyone read Outlander, let alone sell it. But uh, you know, once having written something to the to the best of my ability, then naturally I would like to sell it and uh, you know have people read it and so forth. So you know, I'll, I'll help with uh, whatever it needs to be done there, manage the social media or whatever. But that has absolutely nothing to do with the creation of the book. You know, that's just me and the page like it's always been. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile your need to be completely emotionally honest in your books, but also technically sound with all of your research? I don't see any reason why those would be exclusive. <laughs> You're able to do them both, which is which is such a blessing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, what would I find in the read in the mm-hmm. research that would cause me to be emotionally dishonest? <laughs> mm-hmm. Diana, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this evening. This has honestly been such yes, a pleasure, pleasure. and mm-hmm. we are we're so excited and and thrilled for you with the Great American Read. I know we haven't even been able to touch upon that in this, and we want to make sure that you can go back to mm-hmm. your daily stuff but we just wanted to say congratulations on it and we're rooting for oh, you we've been you. voting for you and yeah no that's great i'm very grateful to them yeah that's it's uh, been a great honor to be um, included in the first place in their hundred you know favorite books mm-hmm. but also to make it to the top 10 is amazing yes. so looking over that uh, that list of the top 10 people <laughs> i said to my husband well now i see they were so anxious that i should come out for their finale it's that only two of the people on that list are still alive <laughs> 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 oh my goodness well I hope that it's uh, everything's been been fun with you for it because it's been fun for us as as book readers and honestly you have just brought so much joy to our lives and to the lives of our listeners I know we can speak for everyone there so thank you for everything that you've done and thank you for taking the time to chat with us this evening it's really been an absolute joy well it's been my pleasure thank you so much Diana Gabaldon ladies and gentlemen Diana Fracking Gabaldone. Wow. Frackin'. Wow. For all our, our uh, Battlestar Galactica friends. <laughs> <laughs> what Guys- do you, you think? You know, this is something that I could never have even fathomed back when I started to read the books. Mm -hmm. And even as the show began and you and I were able to enjoy Outlander together and we created this podcast, it was like this little glimmer. Like maybe, maybe we would be able to talk to this author, the woman who was able to dream up this universe and these Mm -hmm. characters and these scenarios that they go through. And little by little... (laughs) 
it's happened. And so we're just so thankful that you all took the time to listen. And the, right. most importantly, that Diana was able to speak with us. And join, that yeah. was really just um, a wonderful experience as a podcaster to be able to chat with one of my favorite authors. Right. Can And I remember after the interview that we did with her, you were like, oh my God, could you imagine like being that barista at this like little ca- cafe in Santa Fe <laughs> where Diana Gabaldon and George R. R. Martin are sitting there just like having a chatting. drink, just chatting, whatever. Hey, how's, how's winds of winter going? <laughs> I don't know. Tell me how bees is going. Like, millions of people are riding on these millions I, tens of millions are riding on these books yes. and they're just like yeah whatever we'll talk about it I love it I love it <laughs> I feel like Frank Frank Pentangeli in The Godfather too. yeah sure whatever no problem but to be able to have someone who is you know your peer in, right. in this industry, not only as an author, but as an author whose show has now been able to be on these full-fledged cable networks with millions of dollars behind them and fandoms. Now, not just with the books, but mm-hmm. people are coming to the books through the TV show. What an incredible experience for her to be able to go through with somebody and that little banter that she was able to share just made me giggle so yeah. much. <laughs> and like the whole thing with like Ira Bear and how he wrote uh, the Garrison Commander, that whole inter, like the inter exchange rather be- between Blackjack Randall and uh, and Claire, and, and, Claire mm-hmm. and and even like when uh, she was talking about the end, how she was like, yeah, they they'd mess it up. So sorry, uh, no, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that. <laughs> that was that was excellent. Well, we want to hear what you think about this interview and this episode. So be sure to weigh in in the Outlander Cast Clan Gathering on Facebook or on our Facebook page or wherever you like to enjoy Outlander Cast content. If that's on iTunes, Instagram, wherever, we want to know what you thought about or the OutlanderCastClan.com. All of the official members are there as yes. well in that community. Such a vibrant community, by the way. Love it personally. Love being part of the clan. And make sure that you uh, check us out on the on on the website as well, outlandcast.com, and be on the lookout for ten personal questions with Diana. We actually talk about many a great thing with her, including her favorite food, mm-hmm. her, her her guiltiest pleasure, her, what she watched, her first celebrity crush. All of those things. All those things. It's, it's all there and it's going to be there and whenever you And do know us. that this episode has been transcribed for our friends who are Outlander fans who are hard of hearing or if you just want a little bit more clarification on something that Diana said, you can head on over to OutlanderCast.com because we had some wonderful members of the OutlanderCast staff take the time to right. transcribe this. Um, it's no easy feat. You have to hit that backwards button and like three a to billion five times. To million in times and so we're really thankful that they were able to do that and please let your friends know for people who are not able to listen to audio podcasts that we have made this available for them and we also wanted to thank obviously the Outlander cast staff we they helped us with uh, a lot of these questions and we also want to thank our patrons as well they sent a lot of great ideas you know exactly who you are you we know that you spoke with us and uh just thank you yes thank you for this amazing effort. <laughs> this was not just Mary and I. This was an entire Outlander Agreed. cast clan Agreed. effort that made this all happen. So, guys and ladies, thank you thank so you. very much. My darling, are you ready to close this uh, this uh, American Great Reads <laughs> award-winning <laughs> podcast? Yes, all right, I let's, am. Uh, let's close it out. 
one of the top ways that people learn about podcasts is that it's recommended to them by a friend. So if you have a friend who watches or reads Outlander, please share this episode with them. This is a great way to expose them to podcasts and to OutlanderCast. And if you've already done that, I would want to really encourage you to take a moment to leave us a review in your podcast app of choice, a written review especially. So we want to give a high five to Outlander Lover on iTunes. This person said, I've been listening to this podcast ever since I first discovered Outlander, the TV series. I feel like Mary and Blake are friends. I never miss an episode. They are great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Another big thanks, as Blake had pointed out, is to our patrons. And we want to thank our members who um, are some of the most generous amounts. We like to give them a huge shout out at the end of our episode. Celine, Heather, Jen, Marilyn, Michelle, Patricia. We've also got Carolyn, Dana, Keelan, Lisa, Liz, Meredith, Sharon, Tara, Tina, Tracy, and last but certainly not least, Anne, Bobby, Jen, and Peg. And if you want to become one of the Outlander Cast Clan members just like those people and benefit from all of the great perks and special add-ons that we have at the Outlander Cast Bonus Clan, go to outlandercastclan.com and check out everything in our entire community there. As I said before, you can find us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. We just want to engage with you and get ready because season four is almost here, guys. Mm. I am bursting at the seams. I cannot wait to delve into each of these episodes. And a huge thanks to all of the cast and uh, all of the staff. Look at me. All of the staff (laughs) at Outlander Cast for keeping us excited entertained. and entertained throughout all of Dratlander. They're going to be bringing you some amazing blog posts the rest of this month and as we go into this season. I'm so. just pumped, man. I'm jacked and pumped. Good. I'm ready for season four. You should be. And it's like, going to be though, amazing. Even though we've already seen the premiere when we you were at New I, York yes. Comic Con, I'm very excited to see it again. Me too. At, in our house, in our pajamas, in my Star Wars pajamas that I have. Because... Why not, man? I'm ready to go. I'm ready to have a dram or six and do it. (laughs) No, you don't need six. You'll fall asleep. Well, ladies and gents, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Thank you even more if you've shared it. Sharing is caring. You can take a screenshot right now if you're not driving, and you can share it in your Instagram stories or in your Facebook feed. And that's another great way to let people know Outlander's coming. Here's a phenomenal interview. (laughs) Learn more about Diana and share it with some friends. Well, even if you are driving, it might might be no, worth getting no, pulled no, over. No, no, it won't. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friends. My name's Mary. My name's Blake. And you've been listening to Outlander Cast.